Singularity. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Singularity One-on-One. Singularity One-on-One is a regular podcast feature of Singularity Weblog, where you can go and listen to it or download it in full. My name is Nicola, a.k.a. Socrates, and as always, I will be the man with the questions. If you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it grow in one of two ways. Number one is you can simply go to iTunes and write a brief review for the show. Or number two, you can go to my donations page and uh, make a donation. Today, my guest on the show is Lincoln Cannon. Lincoln is a philosopher and programmer promoting change towards radical flourishing in creativity and compassion through technology and religion. He is also the head, uh, one of the board of the directors of the Mormon Transhumanist Association. So hi, Lincoln, and welcome to my show. Thank you, Nicole. I'm happy to be here with you. Fantastic. So, uh, Lincoln, perhaps the best way to begin our conversation today is uh, to start with your uh, association, would you mind telling us a little bit about uh, the Mormon Transhumanist Association, what it is, who its members are, and what the goals and the purpose behind it are? Yeah, happy to do that. Thank you. Mormon, Mormon Transhumanist Association, we founded it about six years ago. It was 2006. And um, there's actually a long history leading up to that decision to found the association. Maybe we can get into that if that interests you. But the association was basically established to do a few things. Number one, it was an expression of our Mormon faith uh, and a practical expression of it, which was very important to us. In Mormonism, there we, we emphasize the idea that faith without works is dead. It's not just enough to believe in something. You have to do something about those beliefs that you have. So it was an expression of our faith. Uh, number two, there there is in many religions today a strain between science and religion. And what we wanted to do at the Mormon Transhumanist Association was in part address that strain, help other people understand how we addressed that strain, how we felt that not only are science and religion compatible, but certain kinds of religion, certain formulations and expressions of religion complement science. They're not just compatible with it, but they they go well together. They build on each other. And then third, we also were very interested in advocating the idea that technology should be applied to the religious project. We have these visions of the future We have these aesthetics that inform the way that we live, and we felt that it was very empowering and useful to use technology in pursuit of the realization of those visions, of those aesthetics. So that, in a nutshell, those are some of the driving reasons why we founded the association. Those are very fascinating points that you just made, and I would like to uh, talk a little bit more about each and every one of them. But before that, because you've mentioned it, uh, would you mind telling us a little bit more about the history uh, behind uh, the association? Because I think that's that's both very relevant and very interesting. Uh, you said it has a very long history. Now, for somebody who is totally ignorant, such as myself, that comes as a complete surprise. Yeah, we, the history of the association does actually go back before it was founded. It was many years, probably oh, six, seven years, 
prior to the founding of the association that the first persons who ended up being well in some in some senses it actually goes back longer than that but let, let's let's just talk about the six or seven years leading up to the founding uh, several of the people who ended up being founders of the association first began to meet and discuss religion and science technology uh, during you know six or seven years before the association was founded and over that period of time it became increasingly important to us to do more than just talk about these ideas that we had to do to do more than talk about our interest in helping others share these ideas and be inspired by these ideas and motivated by them because they had brought so much to us they had brought some they had brought certain kinds of peace to us because it's not unusual for religious persons to feel an amount of turmoil in this increasingly scientific world and we didn't feel the same turmoil that we saw in other people's lives and there was a sort of motivation there to share that but uh, to be more specific several of us met in a religious discussion forum called beliefnet in the year 2000 at the time it was probably the preeminent uh, forum for discussing religion mm-hmm. and we we met there we we had very broad ranging discussions about religion um you know with the focus on mormonism because we had mormon backgrounds and that led to close friendships and explorations of related topics. And as it turned out, many of us also had backgrounds in information technology. Mm-hmm. So that common background in information technology, that common background in Mormonism, sort of led us very naturally to discover what we hadn't discovered at the time was this word transhumanism. And I'll speak just for myself, but I know that there are several other of the founders of the, of the MTA that feel similarly. When I first discovered transhumanism, I thought, wow, there are secular people who think very much like I do, and they're not even religious people. (laughs) Vision of humanity transcending itself, becoming more than we are today. And they're talking to one of those people, yes. There you go. And (laughs) and all that God. From a Mormon perspective, I do call that God, but they don't. But then they have all of these related ideas, some of which um, were familiar to me in different terms. Others were new to me, but were very reaffirming of my worldview. And so when I discovered transhumanism, I thought, there is a secular word for what I've been all, all of my you know conscious life. And I want to know more about them, and I want to associate with these people, and I want to learn from them. I want to share my views with them and say, hey, listen. There are religious people out there who think very much like you guys think. So um, when I when I and and some of my friends discovered this at the time that we discovered transhumanism, this was several years after th- 2000. This was maybe I'm thinking 2005. We at the time were already discussing organizing some sort of association to advocate the ideas that we had been talking about. And at the time, the name of the association that we were considering was the Foundation for Immortality and Resurrection Science and Technology. And, you know, our interest there was we want to advocate this practical approach to these, you know, rather radical applications of technology that we imagined may be possible in the deep future. 
And then once we had discovered transhumanism and that there were secular persons advocating the same sorts of ideas, we thought, well, no, why, why completely reinvent ourselves? Why not build on the same foundations that these others are building from? We have, you know, working together, we can do a whole lot more. So we decided that we would change and no longer go with a name like what I had suggested, but instead go with a name which we ended up with, which was the Mormon Transhumanist Association. We, we contacted the uh, leadership of the World Transhumanist Association at the time, you know, they've since changed their name to Humanity Plus, and we, we asked if they, well, the first thing we noticed is that on their website, they said that they were trying to create uh, affiliates or chapters and that they were open to the idea of creating subject matter specific affiliates and chapters. Mm-hmm. And things they listed, although to my knowledge they didn't have any, was the possibility of various religiously interested groups. And so we we sent them a letter saying, hey, guys, we would like to form a, a an associated group that is a special interest group focused on religion, and particularly the Mormon religion. Would you be interested in, in affiliating with us? And I, I, I can only imagine what was going through their heads when they first received that message. There were probably all kinds of <laughs> debate of of the World Transhumanist Association. I don't know all the details of that debate, but the end result was at least the majority of them were um, interested in affiliating with us. And so we did affiliate with the World Transhumanist Association and found the Mormon Transhumanist Association. Both of those things happened in early 2006. And then, you know, there's the history of the association since that point. That's a very fascinating story, Lincoln. And in, in the process of you telling it to us, I have to say you've successfully managed to break the, the traditional stereotypes that, that people perceive Mormons uh, through, uh, at, least, at least for me. So I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated and blown away by that story. And I want to grab one point there and, and ask you, how is it that you discover transhumanism? Which personally, which writer or, or article or book was it that did it for you? Yeah. I had one of my friends who I met at BeliefNet, who, by the way, is not one of the friends who ended up being a co-founder of the association, but a good friend nonetheless, a Buddhist, a Buddhist Mormon. He's kind of a <laughs> these days, aren't there? Anyway, he pointed out a website to me called KurtzweilAI.net. And I read it with fascination, and the word transhumanist doesn't really appear on that website very often. It was links from that website that kind of took me to that. And then from a completely different direction, being very interested in the philosophy of mind, and one of my favorite movies being The Matrix, um, I also just, I don't even remember what I was searching for, but one day came across the website for the simulation argument by Nick Bostrom. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that Nick Bostrom was a transhumanist. At the time, I really didn't know that there was this kind of community relationship or connection be- between Kurzweil and Bostrom and the ideas behind what they were presenting on those websites. But, you know, as you might imagine, with not much time of investigation, it finally those dots connected and I realized that there was a, this fairly well-developed idea of transhumanism and singularitarianism 
kind of informing the background of what was going on with both of those. And both of them resonated so, so strongly with me and others that I knew that it was, it was, it was, it was inspiring, frankly. You know, I don't know if, I don't know if, uh, that, that's a persuasive word for the, for the, you know, very staunchly secularly oriented people, but I felt inspired by it. It seemed sublime. It seemed even divine in its inspiration. And I, I loved it and I wanted to make that part of who I was. That's, um, that's absolutely amazing. So, so uh, let me ask you this. Do you feel that that sort of uh, thing happened because as many, so many of the most notable critics of both, uh, of especially singularitarianisms, uh, ha- have claimed uh, the singularity is basically rupture for the nerds or religion for geeks? Do you think that that's true, and or do you think that has any bearing towards the fact that you were so inspired and 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 you thought it it was even divine in some ways, as you just said? Yes, you know, I think there is something to it. There are many people who understand the singularity in many different ways, and I'm and I'm not going to say that one of them's wrong because my definition's right. But I think there's that there are clearly some ways of understanding the technological singularity that lend themselves toward religious behavior, religious modeling, religious aesthetics. And, you know, even Kurzweil in, in his book, uh, The Singularity is Near, he even gets to the point where he starts drawing those connections himself and he asks the question, well, does is this God, is there a God? And his answer in the book, as I recall, is, well, maybe not yet. Not yet, yes. And, you know, while, while I, while I have reason that we might discuss later to disagree with that perspective, that perspective nonetheless, I think, is a beautiful perspective because it, it embraces the, it embraces what I would call a religious drive, an aesthetic, a passion, mm-hmm. a vocation to transcend what we are now, be something that is more sublimely creative, more radically compassionate, um, not dehumanizing, um, not anti-humanistic, but mm-hmm. really beautiful transcendence and incorporation of all that is good and beautiful and true about humanity into something more. And I call those sorts of aesthetics religion. And we could get into a discussion of, you know, what religion is. But, yeah, to basically answer your question, the rapture of the nerds, that's kind of a derogatory way of putting it, but... Yes, there is something potentially and in practice quite religious about singularitarianism and transhumanism, particularly for me and, and how I understand those things. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, the, the particular way that you understand those things, because if, if I've learned one thing after interviewing 70 or 80 people is that pretty much everybody has a different interpretation of all the important terms we're talking about. So... I think it's very helpful to lay them out the way you understand them so that people know exactly what you're meaning. So uh, let's start first with just, if, you, if it's possible at all, a very brief introduction and definition about what Mormonism is and, and, and how is it different from Christianity and what are the basic tenets, if that's possible, say, within three or four or five minutes at the most. <laughs> yeah, do our, do our best, you know. Um, the first thing I'll mention is that many Mormons would approach this in many different ways. So don't, don't assume that what I, what I say now, no Mormon would disagree with. You know, it's like talking about the singularity. 
I can give you, you my definition of the singularity, but there will be five other singularitarians who will say, that's a ridiculous definition of the singularity. Absolutely, so, yes. But that, with that caveat, my perspective on what Mormonism is, and I think it is shared by a substantial number of Mormons, is that Mormonism is an immersive discipleship of Jesus Christ. And what I mean by immersive is that Mormonism takes Christianity, if you will, to an extreme. We are supposed to take that discipleship of Jesus Christ to the point of taking on ourselves the identity of Christ, seeking to be saviors, as in the scriptural phrase, saviors on Mount Zion, to seek to console and to heal and serve and to follow this example that we look to Jesus Christ for and to bring that into our lives immersively and to be Christ, to live that way and to try and, and share that same perspective with others and, and seek a reconciliation and a, and a union with others in this body of Christ, if you will. So an, an important distinction perhaps between Mormonism and more mainstream Christianity is Mormonism uh, purports to be a, a kind of reamassing or rebuilding or reconstruction or re-revelation even of, of original Christianity, primitive Christianity. So we, we, we reject the creeds, for example, of mainstream Christianity. It's not that we think that everything about the creeds is like evil or, or anything like that, but we don't restrain ourselves to those creeds. And associated with that is a very important idea in Mormonism that God is embodied. God is not immaterial. God is not merely abstract. God is embodied. And related to that, in Mormonism, it's also important, as, as I say, in this immersive discipleship of Christ, that we become God, that we become Christ, that it's not just enough to perhaps worship in, in the sense that some people would consider the word worship to mean, which would be an adoration in a groveling sense, or maybe a, you know, a respectful but distanced sense, or you know, this being is superior to me and always will be. No, in Mormonism, God is something that we are supposed to worship through emulation. We are supposed to become as God is. In Mormonism, God is our father, our mother, our parents, you know, in, in the heavenly sense. And our task as children of God is to become as our heavenly parents. So, um, that, of course, th this idea of theosis becoming God or apotheosis, um, deification, that, that's a pretty strong distinguishing factor between Mormons and many other mainstream Christians. And we take it quite literally. We do believe Mormons do generally. Now, they're, they're, you know, Mormonism's diverse and some will, will take this less strongly than others. But most of us take quite seriously this idea that our task is to become as God. And, and that's not for us, it's a very important that, you po that we point out that's not just becoming super powerful. No, pri primarily, that is about a radical compassion. Compassion, yeah, that's what I was going to say. In, in that sense, it's very similar to Buddhism, it, it, at least it sounds to me like, because Buddhism, in a way, is totally about compassion itself. 
there are certainly there are certainly overlaps, and in fact, I mentioned to you, I've got friends who consider themselves Mormon Buddhists. <laughs> there are ways that you can find that overlap. Personally, I love Buddhism, and more particularly, I really love the Buddhist friends I have. I think Buddhism does a fascinating, very very successfully adjusts people in positive ways. It makes very good people, and I love that about Buddhism. I have some concerns about the kind of um, the metaphysics of Buddhism. Um, I think it's a little bit escapist, but, uh, but you know, in practice, kind of minus some of those metaphysical concerns, I, I really do love Buddhism quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. So let's move on. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. There are many formulations of Christianity, which I would say uh, promote escapism too. So that, that's not a criticism of, of Buddhism. Uh, of, of course, yes. Uh, so, so let's move on to the other terms then. So, so then, what is transhumanism in, in your view? Is that the tool or the way or the method via which, as you said, your goal is to become God, to emulate God? Is it technology which provides that way? For you to emulate God, and is it transhumanism more specifically in your case that way of doing it? Yeah, I would say it's among the ways. So, first of all, no amount of technology can help me choose right now whether to be a compassionate person or not. That's kind of, you know, Buddhists would point out the same kind of thing. There's something in me, or even in my in my breaking down the walls between me and others, if you will, to take the more Buddhist perspective, that uh, I have to make a choice about. I have to I have to see the connectedness between me and others and seek out that compassion. Now there may be ways. There certainly are ways that we can use technology to give ourselves better feedback about the kinds of people that we are and about the ways that we're seeking to be compassionate. Certainly, technology can play a role. But there's also this, a, a spiritual or a more aesthetic side to it that I think it would be a mistake to forget. Uh, on the other hand, yes, as, as I mentioned earlier, Mormonism, one of, one of the emphasized aspects of it is this idea that salvation or our ability to become as God requires both grace and works. Um, we're given this opportunity where, you know, opportunity is all around us. But unless we do something about that opportunity, unless we embrace it and leverage it and use it volitionally, then no amount of grace, no amount of opportunity will amount to anything for us. So what are these works that we talk about? Well, works can be all kinds of things. And very importantly, technology is a powerful application of work. So um, I, I, would, I would argue, and now th- this is a little bit more controversial among Mormons, as you might imagine. Yes. But I, I want to w- come back to that point. Good, yeah. Let, let, let's explore that. But I would argue that Mormonism mandates transhumanism and that Mormons are implicit transhumanists. There's a few reasons for that. We've talked about some of them. Um, one of them, for example, is this idea that we're supposed to become as God is, right? And so we are supposed to change. Not the basic premises. Another is the idea that God wants us to use the means that we have available to us to make that change happen, that we're supposed to passively wait for God to do all the work for us. 
that's a that's a repeated message throughout Mormon scripture is that God gives us means, but we're supposed to do the work. Mm-hmm. And then another thing that we find repeatedly through Mormon scripture is that one of the means that God gives us to do this work is technology. Examples all throughout script, Mormon scripture, really fascinating ones at times about God even granting these really interesting, it seems technological objects to these persons in these stories to help them in their journey toward, for example, in one case, toward the promised land. Um, to, just to very shortly encapsulate the story I'm referencing right there, it's a story about uh, a man named Lefi, Nephi and Lehi. Lehi is the father of Nephi. And they're journeying to the promised land. And one morning when they wake up, outside their tent, they find this this metallic ball. And they call it a Leahona. And this ball is supposed to point them the direction they should go. And they're supposed to trust in this ball and follow that ball as it points them in the direction they should go. This, you know, this text was written what, nearly 200 years ago. And uh, here we have this example of something very much like a compass being used as part of this faith journey, as part of this salvific journey. So, and, and there's other stories I could reference in, in Mormon scripture which talk about the application of technology as one of the means we can use to pursue our salvation. Mm-hmm. So going back to the meaning of transhumanism for you, just to make that explicitly clear. So what is it that, that, that it, it stands for in your view? Yeah, so transhumanism, I'd say the essence of transhumanism is the trust in our posthuman potential. That not only is it possible to use the means around us, technology, to transcend humanity, but that there are ethical ways of doing it and that there are uh, beautiful ways of doing it. So, for example, we, um, you know, a, a definition of transhumanism that I like a lot is the one used by the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technology. And I believe the way that they say it there is that transhumanism is the ethical use of technology to extend human abilities. Very succinct um, definition. And, and the word ethics is very important to that. Mm-hmm. People all the time, because a lot of people have a bad idea about this. The transhumanism is not just cheerleading technology. Transhumanism is identifying both the risks and the opportunities and then formulating strategies for mitigating those risks and mm-hmm. pursuing those opportunities ethically. Mm-hmm. So that's what transhumanism is for me, is how do we transcend hum- our, our current limitations in ways that are good and beautiful, and and how do we do that in ethical ways? That's what transhumanism is about for me. And frankly, when I describe it that way, all I'm doing in my mind is using some secular terminology to describe a very important aspect of Mormonism. Uh, and and uh, just a couple of sentences about the singularity, perhaps, so that we nail that one down and we can proceed with just the meat of the matter, the more specific discussion. Yeah, so singularity, um, I, I, I take a, a, a Kurzweilian approach to, to understanding the technological singularity, this idea that tools, and you could even define tools very broadly, even in the biological sense, right? Kurzweil goes back into even chemistry itself being a kind of tool and physics itself and then building up to or- <clears throat> excuse me, single and multi-celled organisms and such. But 
this basic idea that tools make it possible to make newer tools that are better than the previous generation of tools and that those tools, because of that, are accelerating the pace of change. And so the technological singularity is based on our current perspective. I think that's important, based on our current perspective, would be a time when our tools get to the point where we can no longer control or predict the trajectory of that rate of change um, and where kind of the results of that change might go. And then, of, of course, that's closely associated with this idea of, of creating maybe the ultimate meta tool, which is artificial general intelligence, which is you know, a tool that can use itself to create a next generation of itself very rap- rapidly that's better than itself. So um, that, that's more or less how I understand the technological singularity. Mm-hmm. So, Lincoln, you mentioned uh, at the beginning of our conversation the, the importance of the relation, be, relationship between science and religion, uh, the value of technology uh, as being applied to religion and so on. Now, let me, let me ask you this, though, and then you find that creating and, and conducting that mission through the Mormon Associ- Association uh, um, Mormon Transhumanist Association uh, helps you accomplish those goals. But let me ask you, uh, is there a division or, or how does the mainstream Mormonism view or perceive uh, your association and, and your views of, of, of accomplishing that mission? The By and large, my experience with Mormons that first encounter the idea of Mormon transhumanism is that their first impression is, is inquisitive. First, most Mormons have never even heard of transhumanism. I hadn't heard of transhumanism until, you know, around 2005. And I think, frankly, that's true of most people in the world. You know, transhumanism, when they first encounter, what? Transhumanism, that's a weird word. <laughs> The very first impression is inquisitive. They don't know what to make of it. And now, depending on their individual personality types, you know, some, some people, when they're feeling that inquisitiveness are kind of standoffish, others are kind of, you know, they really want to get involved and ask questions. So, you know, there's a range of how that inquisitiveness is manifest, but the first impression is inquisitiveness. So then, you know, the next step, of course, is after they ask that question, explaining to them. They already know what Mormonism is, right? So what's Mormon transhumanism? What's this transhumanism thing? And so I'll usually explain transhumanism to them first, you know, as the short elevator pitch, as the ethical use of technology to expand human abilities. And then I talk about, usually, um, some very basic ways that we've been doing that for a long time. If they're wearing glasses, I usually say, right now, the fact that you're wearing glasses is, is an application of technology to extend your abilities. And in fact, the nutrients that you've been eating from the food that you eat is also a very basic way that humans for a very long time have been extending our capacities beyond what they were thousands of years ago. So I, I try to set some common ground with them about the ways that we've already been using technology uh, to extend our abilities in really non-controversial ways. Mm-hmm. I do explore with them a little bit about where technology is going. And, and you can say more or less, it varies, you know, as substantially among Mormons as it does among people on the street. Um, some Mormons 
are are better educated in what technology is doing and has been doing than others. So you kind of have to try and gauge that while you're discussing with them. But by and large, I would say that Mormons have a very positive attitude toward technology. We always have. Um, generally, we have a good um, attitude towards science, although historically and presently, there have been some challenges related to evolution. Now, an interesting thing on evolution is that Brigham Young University, which is the Mormon-sponsored um, university in Utah, yeah. actually they have locations in Idaho and Hawaii, um, they teach at the university uh, evolution, you know, including human evolution. Mm-hmm. And professors that teach it, almost all of, them, all of them are Mormons. And they teach that it's compatible with our perspectives on God. And some of them that I know personally would even go so far as to argue that Mormons should be the foremost advocates of evolution in the world because of our ideas of what we call eternal progression of humanity evolving into godhood. And we should see that as perfectly compatible going the other direction with humanity evolving from less complex life forms. So that's one very serious distinction between Mormonism and mainstream Christianity, if I may say so. It is a very important distinction. Uh, I would add, though, that many Mormons have been deeply influenced by mainstream Christian perspectives. And because of that, there has been historically and presently a substantial degree of tension around the idea of evolution. I'd argue, though, that most of that tension arises from not having received an interpretation of evolution on the one hand and our religion on the other that are compatible mm-hmm. so because they feel threatened by the idea because yeah. they see Christians feeling threatened by the idea they kind of want to push it away yes and so one of the services that i think the mormon transhumanist association provides is that we are very pro-evolution from beginning to end almost all of us and so one of the services, that, therefore, that we provide to other Mormons is to say, look, we can look at our theology, our religion, and our doctrine, and our history, mm-hmm. and that are perfectly compatible, even complementary with evolution, understood in the way that contemporary science understands it, not, not intelligent design, um, no, no, no funny business like that. Understood in these ways, it is compatible with our Mormon faith. Here's why. Mm-hmm. I would say that, to, you know, the short answer to your question, Mormon, Mormons are, you know, almost all Mormons are mostly pro-technology. Of course, they'll have concerns about um, immoral applications of technology, as we all should. Yes. Very favorable towards technology. Um, generally, we're favorable towards science, but there has been some tension. Yeah, let me grab that point here uh, with respect to the tension uh, uh, towards science. Now, um as part of my preparation for this interview, I sort of tried to get educate myself on the sort of a macro view of the sort of history of Mormonism, as as it were. And I know that at least uh, at least around uh, the late 1980s and early 1990s, some of the leaders of the uh, Mormon Church have explicitly named that enemy number one was, uh, as it was put, gays. Feminists and scientists. Intellectuals was the word they used, yes. Um, so or intellectuals, yes. So, so how has that sort of view of enemy number one changed, uh, uh, or just 
Is that true at all? How do you feel about it? Yeah, I, well, I have mixed feelings about all of this. Uh, during that period of time when those sorts of statements were being made, I was uh, a teenager and was somewhat aware of what was going on, not as aware as I am now of the history of it, mm-hmm. and was troubled by it and continue to be troubled by it to some extent today. Um, for, first of all, intellectuals should never have been named an enemy to to Mormonism. In fact, Mormonism has a very strong intellectual tradition. Um, but, you know, under threat of change and pressures and such, the Mormon leaders, as you've pointed out, have taken that stance. I, I find that regrettable. Um, there is no reason in my understanding of Mormonism, its doctrine, its theology, its culture, there's no necessary reason for that tension with intellectuals. In fact, I think that they are very complementary. So, yes, uh, those threats have been expressed. And what I can say now is that the environment that was present when the statements were made in the early 1990s has changed quite substantially. And let me give you an example mm-hmm. to really make that create much as there, there was at the time a very um, infamous set of excommunications. Yes. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which is, of course, by far the largest Mormon denomination, and I'm a member of that denomination. Um, the, that was known as the September 6th, and they were excommunicated for reasons of apostasy. Is mm-hmm. And most of them, but not all of them, their apostasy was associated with these ideas of intellectualism and feminism. Precisely. Uh, not so much the gay issue, and I do want to talk about the gay issue in a minute with you, but um, it, they were excommunicated for uh, apostasy based on their feminist and intellectualist views. Um, and it was really, it had, it had some really shocking reverations throughout the Mormon community, particularly among educated and academic Mormons, which there are many of, by the way. We, if you go and look at statistics, Mormons are above average in our education levels. So, um, Lincoln, I'm sorry to interrupt here, but I, I lost picture. Uh, can you see me? So at that period of time, when the September 6th were excommunicated for feminism, and intellectualism, basically, to kind of put it in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's been a there. There's been ongoing change since then, and I'd like to give you an example to kind of make that concrete of of how much that has changed. One of my close friends is is a close friend to one of those September six, mm-hmm. and that person that member uh, that that one of those september 6 has recently come back to the lds church um, been rebaptized into the church oh wow and I, I was not aware of that yeah um there were news articles on it in the salt lake tribune and um there were there were speeches given at uh at various conferences that uh, Mormons attend to discuss these kinds of things. So it was, it was a big deal. People knew about this, but the most, here, here's the most important thing about it, in my opinion. Not only that she came back, 
But when she came back and when she was discussing the possibility of coming back with her ecclesiastical leaders, mm-hmm. none of them ever asked her about her positions on the things that led to her original excommunication. She was never asked about it. She was asked all of the typical typical questions about how does she feel about her discipleship of Christ, mm-hmm. things related to that kind of thing, very normal ecclesiastical questions. Yes. But she was never asked about her opinions on feminism. She remains a feminist today. Yeah. She was never asked about her positions on intellectual issues. She remains an intellectual advocate today. Uh, so I think that shows that over the last 15 years, maybe 20 years, there have been some changes in our culture. I, I would, again, I'd argue there's been zero changes related to either of those issues on doctrine. They were never doctrinal issues that they were excommunicated for, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, but our cultural interpretation of those things has evolved for yeah. the better. Fantastic. She's back in the church. Uh, she's happy about it. She was treated very respectfully We're coming, coming back to the church. And I think that that's a good example of how we have made some, I, for our culture, some important progress from, from where we were in the early 1990s. Yeah, I watched a number of interviews with her uh, as part of my preparation for this interview, but apparently they were a bit older because in one of them she was basically sharing how she got excommunicated. And she said what shocked her the most from the whole experience was that everybody of all those men who who are members of the committee who took the decision to excommunicate her told her that they really liked her and, and, and they really were impressed by her and each one of them came and shook her hand, and at the same time, they decided to excommunicate her. And she was saying that she was shocked by how every one of them could be so incredibly nice while at the same time conducting what she perceived to be a highly violent act towards her. Yeah, you're talking about a different one of the six that I was talking about. To my knowledge, the one that you're referencing is not back yet. I, I, I hope the day will come that she is. Because she's also, she's, she's a, uh, one of the more well-known feminists, in my opinion. But She is. Yes. Uh, okay, so let's move on. So that's fantastic news. And then, so you're showing uh, as an organization, as a church, uh, impressive progress uh, on issues like that for a very short period of time, 15, 20 years. That's... In church terms, that's that's nothing. That's a blink of an eye, and, and I'm I'm impressed with that. But let's see if we can push it further. Yeah. Um, so uh, let's talk before we get to to being gay. Uh, let let's talk about intellectualism and science a little bit more. Now, from where I stand, I believe that most, if not all, major religions have some kind of a, at best, you know tentative relationship with science, sort of a uh, high-tension one, uh, because many of them, uh, of the major religions, are concerned that certain parts of science can can prove or disprove, more likely, uh, some of the basic dogmas and tenets that they hold for true by definition. So, uh, now, uh, and that's true of, you know, Catholicism and, and so on, but uh, with respect to Mormonism, uh, the way I understand it is that one of the major beliefs is that the Israelites uh, sort of traveled uh, thousands of years ago to North America, 
and uh, therefore the native, uh, what we in Canada called fir call First Nations people or the Indians, as others would refer to them, are basically the descendants of those first Israelites who traveled from, from there to here, and that we are living here in the Promised Land, um, in North America, that is. Now, scientifically speaking, uh, the archaeological record of, of those periods, at least up to now and to my knowledge, doesn't hold any proof of that. And there's been a lot of... Um, Discomfort at best, I think, perhaps, is the word that I should put, uh, with respect to people who are willing and, and looking for ways to dig out and show one way or another, help people make a decision one way or another as to whether that important belief is true from archaeological point of view. Yeah. So how do you think, uh, can that be reconciled with Mormonism? Because archaeology, is, as we know, is, is an important science, I think. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Uh, so let me, let me um, answer that question in two ways. First of all, let me answer it from the perspective of mainstream um, Mormonism, mainstream members of the church. Okay. And then I'll share my own views sure. on it. Which um, will will be a, a somewhat different than the the mainstream views, and I want that to be clear that there is a distinction there. Mm -hmm. uh, from the mainstream perspective, uh, what you've been talking about is the historicity of the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon does claim to be a record of Jews that traveled to the Americas two thousand years ago. Yes, and twenty five hundred years ago, something like that, and uh, established a civilization in the Americas told their story in the Book of Mormon and then some of them died out and then others continued on. The record was, as the text claims, uh, buried in the American continent and then Joseph Smith later found the record and with the help of God translated it into what we have as the Book the of Mormon. The Golden Plates. That's right. Yeah. So that's, that's the basic story behind what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. So um, nowhere in the text of the Book of Mormon does it claim that these people in, that are described in the Book of Mormon are the principal ancestors of the Native Americans? It doesn't claim that anywhere in the text. However, mm -hmm. until recently, just within the last few years, an introduction to the text that was written, um, I don't remember exactly when, but you know, within the last 50 or 100 years, um, the introduction to the text claimed that the people described in the Book of Mormon were the principal ancestors of the Native Americans. Yes. In just the last few years, the LDS Church has changed that introduction and has adjusted it to say that these people described in the Book of Mormon are among, instead of the principal, are among the ancestors of the Native Americans. So that mm -hmm. because of um, archaeological science, the LDS Church has backed away from a claim it was making about the text towards one that is at least more reasonable given present objective assessments of archaeology. I think the other impetus uh, behind perhaps changing such a uh, decision might have been the DNA comparisons between Native American people and, uh, you know, uh, Israelites, uh, which have don't show the, the sort of ancestry that you would imagine looking at the DNA. That's correct. 
yeah, I, I think that was certainly one of the drivers for the change. Yeah. So um, now the mainstream member of the LDS church to this day, almost all of them will say, yes, they still consider the Book of Mormon to to be a historic record to some extent or another. Now, there's lots of interpretations on this. There's this idea of an expansionist theory where there are elements of historicity that were expanded upon by Joseph Smith. So there's a sort of complexity in how Mormons approach this. But um, most Mormons, most members of the LDS Church will say that they continue to consider the Book of Mormon a historical record and that um, and some of them will still argue, especially the older ones, that the person, the, the civilization described in the Book of Mormon were the principal ancestors of Native Americans. The younger ones are probably more adaptive to where the church has gone with saying that, uh, that they're among the ancestors of the Native Americans. So that's what you would encounter with most Mormons today. Now I want to shift into my, my perspective on this. My perspective match mainstream Mormonism. Yeah. My perspective on this is that I, I completely agree that there is not objective evidence for the historicity of the Book of Mormon. There just is not. I would love there to be. It's an interesting question, and I, I encourage the investigation of it. I'd also say I don't think that the, I don't think that the, um, that the case is closed. There are some very intriguing hints of possibilities for finding evidence for the historicity of the Book of Mormon, but they're controversial, mm-hmm. and I realize that. But I, I encourage the investigation, an open and honest investigation of it, open meaning open-minded, both directions, because there are certainly biases um, for religious reasons on both sides of this question that make an open-minded investigation very difficult for people to engage in. Mm-hmm. So... Um, I recognize that there's a, a lack of objective evidence for his historicity. I encourage an ongoing investigation of it. But then personally, the Book of Mormon, for me, based on my experience with reading it, trying to live by the principles that it teaches, trying to share those principles with others, I nonetheless, irrespective of its historicity, consider the book to be scripture, consider the book inspired and inspiring, particularly. Mm-hmm. So um, to use a phrase that religious people would use, I consider it the word of God, and I respect it in that sense. Mm-hmm. It's so persuasively that, for me in my experience, that even if I were to become persuaded that there is sufficient objective evidence against the Book of Mormon's historicity, I would continue to respect and revere the Book of Mormon as scripture. Um, of course, in that case, if I were persuaded that it were not historic objectively, then I would be considering inspired fiction rather than inspired history. Mm-hmm. And I, I really don't look at the Book of Mormon. I don't go to the Book of Mormon seeking history in the same reason for all the same reasons that I don't go to the Bible seeking history. Now yes. I can Bible an inspired text too, but I don't consider it infallible. I don't consider it inerrant. I consider it a demonstration of humanity's progress in understanding our conceptions of God, these projections that we project out there on God. Now, I'm a theist. I am a theist, a theist, not atheist. Yes, <laughs> yes. Clear. I, I, I have faith in God, but I also recognize that faith in God is in large measure a projection of ourselves. In fact, 
maybe mostly that most of the time. And so for me, what inspires me about scripture and particularly about this long history of scripture that we have presented to us in the Bible and frankly in Hindu texts that are even older is this lesson in seeing how humanity has struggled to understand ourselves and our relationship with God and God better and better over time. And that also inspires me. I don't look to it for the infallible word of God. I look to it for inspiration in mm-hmm. how can also personally improve my relationship and understanding, relation, mm. frankly, of God. But don't you find that to be in contradiction with the traditional Mormon attitude that, you know, as you pointed, I think, in the beginning yourself, uh, Mormons take, uh, take the interpretation of their books much more literally rather than, say, traditional Christians. Uh, for a number of reasons. One of it is the historicity, because, you know, the Mormon church has only about 200 years of history behind it, whereas Christianity has 2,000 at least. Uh, and therefore, uh, the shorter the distance from the spring, the more literal your interpretation tends to be, I think. Uh, That's possible. I, I would suggest, though, and, and I'm going to step out of my personal perspective over to the mainstream LDS church perspective again. Okay. Just within recent years, and in fact this may only be a couple of year couple of years old, the LDS church itself has has put out press releases to their newsroom blog which have explicitly said that Mormons, we members of the LDS church, we do not strictly hold to the inerrancy or infallibility of the Bible. We do not strictly hold to literal interpretations of our scripture. Um, this is the LDS church itself through an official newsroom blog making these statements. And if you go back through Mormon tradition, even to our earliest leaders, I'll use Brigham Young as an example. Brigham Young was the one who led the Mormons after Joseph Smith. Yes. Eastern United States to Utah, to what became Utah later on. Yes. Brigham Young repeatedly expressed his perspective that scripture should not always be interpreted literally, and that if scripture were to be rewritten, it would be substantially modified from its present form. He even made that statement about the Book of Mormon, that even the Book of Mormon, if it were to be rewritten, would be substantially modified from its current form, suggesting that scripture is something that should always improve both our understanding of it and the text itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Lincoln, uh, time is advancing here, and uh, I would like to touch maybe on one or two more issues uh, before we call it a day, uh, even though I have to say I'm really enjoying our conversation today, so uh, the very fact that I haven't managed to get through probably one-third of the points that I wanted to bring in our conversation may give me an excuse to ask you to come back on the show again. Um, so let me see if we can talk to another very controversial issue, and that's uh, being gay. Now, let me lay down first my own uh, personal uh, biases, if you will, and that's the fact that first I'm a very proud Canadian, um, and as you know, from a legal point of view, Canada was one of the first countries in the world to um, uh, legally allow gay marriage. Now, uh, put on top of that that I consider myself to be a transhumanist, uh, and, and I think that uh, the biology should not be destiny. Uh, therefore, people should, in my views personally, be able to absolutely choose who they want to spend the rest of their lives with uh, as partners, be it from the same sex or the opposite sex. Uh, so those are my biases coming into this conversation. Now, uh, 
I would imagine generally, from my point of view, that transhumanism is, is very pro-gay, if you will, because uh, it's all about transcending biology, transcending our own limitations and moving forward. At the same time, I would imagine that Mormonism would have serious problems with it, and yet I'm talking to a Mormon transhumanist. So how do we balance those two together in your association and in your, in your own views personally, and which one is it in the end of the day? Yeah, good question. So as before in talking about you know matters of feminism and intellectualism, or in talking about the historicity of the Book of Mormon, I want to stress that, you know, my perspective is one of many Mormon perspectives. And I'm going to try to talk about, you know, both my perspective and the broader perspective. And so first, on the more, the broader Mormon perspective, I think most people are familiar with how engaged the LDS church has been in promoting, for example, Proposition 8 in California, which was the proposition to make um, gay marriages illegal. Yes. LDS Church has been involved in other um, similar in projects in you know recent decades. So there, there's, there's very clearly a strong uh, institutional resistance or institutional even um, explicit antagonism to the idea of gay marriage and homosexuality. And but is it only institutional or is it dogmatic? Well, yeah, let, let's let's explore that a little yes. bit. Yes. So, but I want to stay with the institution a little bit longer. Sure, of course. And when we think of Proposition 8, that takes us back a few years. Uh, fast forward to this year, 2012, and between Proposition 8 and 2012, we've seen some very interesting things happen. Um in the institutional church. One of the things that we saw happen a few years ago is that in Salt Lake City, where, as you might imagine, the LDS church wields a great deal of political power. Absolutely. We, we saw the church, institutional church, come out in favor and in support of various rights for homosexuals in Salt Lake City by law. I don't remember what all of those explicitly are, but some of them were, for example, visitation rights um, to their partners and things along those lines. The church came out in favor of those rights. Now, the church did not suggest that um, we should um, go ahead and make gay marriage legal in Utah or something like that. It didn't go that far. But it did what many members of the church and many non-members thought the church would never do and come out in favor of a certain set of rights for homosexuals in Salt Lake City, which is the headquarters of the church. Mm-hmm. So that, that, that's one, one additional context-setting thing to, to take into consideration. Uh, come forward a few more years to the present year, and here in 2012, we had a presidential election where um, a, a very um, well-known Mormon was running for president, Mitt Romney. Yes. And maybe in part because of that, and perhaps also in part because of the hostility and negative relations that were generated from our our past dealings with this issue. We were very silent as an institution. Our, the church was very silent as an institution on issues of gay marriage that were on the ballot in various states. Absolutely. Uh, not only that, 
but also we've seen a just recently um, the LDS Church put out a new website. The name of that website is called mormonsandgays.org. And this is the very first time that the LDS Church has even used the word gay officially when talking about homosexuals, when talking about gays. Typically, historically, the LDS Church has used the phrase same-sex attraction. They've refused to acknowledge um, that people were born, essentially, gay. This website explicitly acknowledges that people are born gay. This is an official website of the LDS Church, and this was released, I think, just a week or two ago. Very recent um, evolution in the in the issue. Now, on the website, the LDS Church stresses that their doctrine isn't changing, but that they feel that it's very important that they be that they express more compassion towards gays. And that, in particular, um, they influence the members of our church to express more compassion towards homosexuals. And as part of that outreach, we're starting to change the language that we use to describe the issue. We're now actually officially using the word gay. We're now actually officially recognizing that there are people who are born gay. And it's also been stressed in recent years that gays who choose to live celibate lives can um, engage in Mormonism all the way to the point of engaging in our temple rituals, which are, are, are kind of the, the climax of the Mormon um, ritual system. Mm-hmm. In recent years, there's been a lot of outreach and stressing of compassion towards homosexuals from an institutional perspective. And I think that this is a, a, a wonderful and, and, from my perspective, very welcome evolution in the issue mm-hmm. on sexuality related to the institution. Now, let me shift a little bit more towards me, but not all the way towards me, and let me talk about some cultural things that have happened recently. Um, in Mormonism, recently there was in Salt Lake City, every year in Salt Lake City, there's a gay pride uh, parade festival. And in fact, Salt Lake City per capita, I believe, is the gayest city in the United States. That might come as a surprise to people, but I think that if you'll That's the- a total shock to me personally, because we pride ourselves to have one of the biggest gay parades in North America. Uh, we usually get about a million people come and visit us for our so-called Pride Parade, Pride Parade in Toronto. And I think last this year, maybe 1.1 or 1.2 million people were attending but it's shocking to me what you're saying, and I'm, I'm very happily impressed, but it's total revelation to me personally. <laughs> or maybe that's not the right word I should use. <laughs> yeah, I, I, that doesn't surprise me that you hadn't heard of that, although I, I encourage you to go and research what I've just said, and I think you'll find that it is the case, wow. uh, that Salt Lake City is the gayest city in America. And so we have this pride parade every year, and just this last year, for the first time, there was a large group of Mormons not associated with the institutional church who decided to march at the front of that parade holding signs talking about how they love and support um, homosexuals and um, not necessarily suggesting anything about whether the institutional church should change doctrine or not. That's a very controversial issue. Yes. Sensitive issue. But they wanted to march in this parade to show their love for homosexuals who, for very valid reasons have expressed pain and hurt um, from their religious experiences with the with the church. Mm-hmm. 
Um, many more Mormons showed up to participate in that march, including uh, several Mormon transhumanists, and um, and more than the, than the organizers anticipated. They marched at the front of the parade. From what I understand, unfortunately, I wasn't able to participate. I would have loved to participate in that. Um, there were tears um, in people's eyes that were watching the parade participating in the parade, it was in many ways a very beautiful reconciliatory experience for these people. And my understanding is that there are plans to continue um, that sort of outreach. So culturally, there are some shifts happening as well. If not in uh, doctrine, at least in backing away from what has been, unfortunately, Historically, some very hostile situations, mm-hmm. very unhealthy and dangerous hostile situations, I would add. So now let me shift all the way to my personal views. I want to stress that my, these are my personal views. These are not the church's views. These are not my culture's views. These don't re- even represent the Mormon Transhumanist Association. Mm-hmm. Although, um, well, let me say one thing about the MTA before I get to my personal views, and that is that we've polled our members on this question, and members of the Mormon Transhumanist Association, as you imagine, are much more pro-gay, on average, than um, mainstream bands are. Yeah, I would so, imagine so myself. Yes. That caveat. Let me let me express my own views. Um, my own views are that um, first of all, it's not my place to set the doctrine for the LDS Church. I respect the church and its leaders. I support them, um, and so I want to kind of make sure that's understood with what I'm saying. On the other hand. There are times when I disagree with my church, and this is one of those issues that I respectfully disagree on. I I believe that we should hold all people, whether they're um, um, gays or straights or or asexual, to the same standard, and that is that in Mormonism we hold to this idea that sexuality is a beautiful and wonderful thing that should be practiced between committed people, and I think that we should extend that same perspective towards gays that we extend towards straights. Mm-hmm. We'd like to see. Um, now, many Mormons think that that would be completely um, incompatible with our doctrines. I disagree. And I could talk for a long time about why I disagree. I don't think that's particularly interesting to the audience for this podcast. Mm-hmm. But I believe that Mormonism is not essentially hostile to homosexuality, that Mormonism is essentially pro-commitment, pro-relationship, pro-social, and that these bonds of community and family should be strengthened in every way we can, and that by being antagonistic to homosexual unions, we're actually driving them more towards promiscuity and less towards commitment and constructive, um, enduring relationships, and that that's harming our own worldview. Mm-hmm very pro-social, very pro-family, very pro-relationship, and that we're hurting our own worldview by um, resisting um, giving gays the same kinds of opportunities that straights have in marriage. Now, what I just said is extremely controversial, and and, um, I would say um, that it's pretty clear that the majority of mainstream Mormons would disagree with what I just said. Mm And I really respect you for saying that, because I know it's not easy, so that's why I didn't want to interrupt you anywhere. No, um, my, my views on that are not secret as well. So um, I, I feel that way. I my my heart goes out to to my fellow um, gay Mormons. I I know that they're suffering. I have many friends who are Mormon and who are gay. 
that have shared with me their experiences and their heart rending. Um, at the same time, I also, I also have, I understand why many of my Mormon brothers and sisters are resisting it because they feel, they honestly and sincerely feel like God has told them that it's morally wrong. And they're, they, and they're being, they're having integrity and in living up to that in the face of this really quite strong resistance that they're meeting. And, um, there is an integrity to admire in that. Now, what may not be as much to admire is some of them may not be as searching about the question as we might hope. Although I think there are more and more people who are searching about the question, who are pondering it very seriously rather than just going with what, you know, their initial inclination might be. We see more and more of that. But I, I don't want to demonize, um, the Mormons who don't share my view on this because I think by and large, they, they're trying very hard to live with integrity to their deep religious spiritual I agree with you about not demonizing anyone uh, in the world, but I can say a lot about how, you know, people who have integrity in the commitment to their own beliefs. I come originally from Bulgaria, uh, and uh, it's been the crossroad between Europe and Asia and the clash between Catholicism, Orthodoxy, and uh, Islam. Uh, and and in, in that area of the world, people have died for centuries uh, killing each other, uh, often the son killing the father and vice versa, uh, simply because of, of commitment to their uh, right. integrity towards their religion. So I, I have a very specific set of views here, but I'll skip it because uh, in, in time is advancing here enormously. So, Lincoln, I, I have to say I'm, I, I enormously enjoyed our conversation. You successfully managed, in my view, to break the mold of, of the stereotype of all those views that people perceive Mormonism in general, I, I think. And I would love to have you back on the show uh, to talk further about not the same issues, but maybe even move forward and talk about many other important issues. But for people who, like me, would be interested to find out more about you personally and, and your organization, the Mormon Transhumanist Association, where is the best place to look for that information? Yeah, so two places to go. If you'd like to find out more about the Mormon Transhumanist Association, the place to go there is transfigurism.org. That's spelled T-R-A-N-S. F-I-G-U-R-I-S-M dot <laughs> Maybe easier just to Google it, Mormon Transhumanist Association, of course, will pop right to the top. If you'd like to find out more about my personal views, you can go to my blog. Again, just probably Google my name is the fastest way, but the address for my blog on the Internet is lincoln.metacanon.net. Fantastic. So uh, let's see if and how we can finish on a on, uh on the positive view here by asking you that my traditional question that I always ask of guests on my show, and that is, if you have a single message that you would like people to take away from this interview with you today, what would you like that to be? Well, there's so many things we touched on. What I, what I would hope people would recognize and embrace and even uh, celebrate with me, even if they're not Mormon and most of your listeners are not, is that there are, there are these relationships, these building blocks, these springboards that are common between us in our pursuit 
of a very beautiful, a radically flourishing future for humanity, and that there are many Mormons, if not most, who embrace that effort to use the technologies, the tools, the means we have at our disposal with compassion, ethically, to achieve that beautiful future that we're aspiring to. Now, there's going to be differences in the vision of what that aspiration is, and we need to talk about those um, without demonizing each other. And as we talk about them, I think our views will be shaped by each other in positive ways. So what I would, you know, my message would be reach out to us, to, to people, to religious transhumanists generally, to Mormon transhumanists, have a dialogue with us, help us shape our views. Let us share our views with you, and I think the good things will come of this. That's a fantastic message, and, and I have to say that as personally someone who is usually greatly suspicious, uh, highly critical, and highly often even cynical, if you wish, about religion in general, not Mormonism in particular, but religion in general, for a number of reasons, I, I have to say that you have successfully managed to bridge that gap uh, and, and make me... Uh, uh, very open-minded and appreciate pretty much because simply I agree with most of the things that you've laid out today. I, I cannot disagree with the major things at all, uh, especially when, com when it comes down to, to your personal views. So I associate with that very much, and I appreciate you being uh, with us today. You're welcome. I hope we have a chance to talk again. Absolutely. Thank you, Lincoln. Thank you, Nicola. Yeah.